Let's pray together. Father, as the words of that song Corky just played, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to know you more. Father, we only know you as you have revealed yourself to us and that you have done so by your grace. We do not deserve what you have done for us. Father, we could not, man and women, could not look upon you in the Old Testament because of the glory that you are. And yet in the New Testament, as God the Son came in flesh as Jesus, he said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Father, that is your great grace displayed in what is the gospel. And so God, as we turn now to your word, your written word in which we encounter your living word, who is Jesus, we ask God that we would see you in this text, that you would speak, that you would reveal yourself in the sense that we might come to know you as you are more deeply appreciate you, God, and it's by grace that we do so. And so we ask for grace to know you more. We ask that you would guard our hearts and minds from distraction, error from my lips, that you would be glorified, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as promised, we arrive at the plagues, the ten iconic expressions of God's power over Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, and despite the fact that they occur over four chapters, we are going to examine them all today. So get ready, that we might see together the truth, I believe, that the God of the Bible is sovereign. Now, before any of our note-takers raise hands and point out, but Andrew, wait a minute, we've already seen God reveal this in regards to himself. If you recall, we, we've seen God demonstrate his presence, his ability to speak and to see the fact that he makes promises. He keeps his promises. He knows the future. He's selective. He's all-powerful. He's completely trustworthy or sovereign. He, he has all authority. He cannot tolerate sin, and yet he involves us in his plans. Did we mention that he's sovereign? So we've already seen this together. And yes, I do recall, and I agree, we have already seen this self-revelation of God. This is not new, but I believe that we need to see it once again, and here's why. I feel that the the sovereignty of God is an attribute that many acknowledge today in the church, but few understand. And and I say this because in recent years, there has been a surge of interest shown in the theological thinking of the 17th and 18th centuries. These 200 years were marked by the profound influence of Puritan, Congregationalist, Baptist leaders that many of you have heard of, men like John Owen, Richard Sibbs, Jonathan Edwards, John Bunyan, Andrew Fuller, uh, William Carey, David Brainerd, Isaac Bacchus, among others. And the theology of these men was marked by a high view of God and his sovereignty. And thus, I believe that there is a growing number of men and women in the church today who are quick to agree that God is sovereign. It sounds right. We, We might even say that it feels right to attribute such a characteristic to God. But as to exactly what this means, well... We're really not all that sure because we say that God is sovereign and yet then we struggle to process all of the tragedies that we see occurring that are reported on the news daily and our culture's moral decadence. We watch our nation legalize sin and yet we ask, well, if, if God is sovereign, then why do we see these things happening? Don't we? 
where we wonder if God is in control, then what does that even mean if God is sovereign? Because we seem to be experiencing horrific things with an ever-increasing frequency. Do you feel that way this morning? In church, I believe that our uncertainty expressed in, the, in so many ways, it, it, it resembles that of the people of God in Egypt. They knew that Yahweh alone was God and that he was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they didn't know how or when. And after 400 years, I believe that they were struggling to wrap their minds around this truth of God's character. And thus, Yahweh arrives and delivers his people by displaying his power over all of Egypt's deities. And he does so that his people might know exactly what his sovereignty looks like. And this is what I believe we need to see together this morning. What does God's sovereignty look like? And so with that said, if you haven't already found the book of Exodus in chapter 7, would you do so? Exodus 7 and find verse 8. Exodus 7 verse 8. And I'd like to read through verse 13. Because while we often refer to the how many plagues were there? Ten, right? What occurs here, verse 8 through 13, I believe serves the same purpose as the actual plagues themselves. So Exodus 7, we're going to begin with verse 8, and I realize we're moving quickly, but we have to, because we have, as I said earlier, we've got to cover four chapters worth of material in only an hour and a half. And so, let's be ready. Be ready. You're paying attention. That's good. That's good. Exodus 7, beginning with verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff, throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one of them threw his staff down, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard. And he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So, the first demonstration, I believe, of God's sovereignty occurs here involving snakes and magicians. And I believe that this points us to the overarching truth in this text, that God alone has true power, while people may only pretend. God alone has true power, while people may only pretend. Our text begins by informing us of God's direction to Moses and Aaron to be prepared to demonstrate his power. And in verse 10, we read that Aaron did just that. He threw his staff on the ground in Pharaoh's presence, and lo and behold, it became a snake. Now, while we as readers ought to be unsurprised by this transformation, what is shocking, at least to me, is that is Pharaoh's coolness here. He, he appears to be completely unfazed by this supernatural transformation as he calls for his wise men and sorcerers, his magicians, who then, jaw-dropper, do the same thing by their quote-unquote secret arts. What is going on here? Is this an instance of Satan's enabling these sorcerers to perform some supernatural work, as some scholars have suggested? Or is this a battle of magicians, if you will? And did God actually think that such a low-quality, lame miracle, namely one that could be replicated by magicians of Pharaoh, could convince him, as some commentators have proposed. And I believe, church, that upon close examination here, we'll find answers to these concerns. And first of all, keep in mind that Moses and Aaron aren't magicians. They're God's chosen leaders called to deliver his people out of Egypt. And therefore, that which they do is being done, as verse 10 states, 
just as the Lord commanded. Thus, their miracle is a miracle of God. However, the Egyptian magicians, we're told, did the same thing by their own secret arts. Their own. If you want to circle those two words and come back later to them, you can remember this fact. According to the text, they did not perform the supernatural by Satan's enabling. They employed their own secret arts as magicians. So, whether they like a David, Brain, uh, David Blaine or possibly David Copperfield, or if you want to go with any number of other modern magicians, performed this trick in which they maybe placed a staff into a box and then out popped a snake, sort of a bait and switch type thing. I don't know. But what we can know is that they did not accomplish the supernatural. Why? Because only God can. And that's a point tastefully demonstrated as Aaron's snake eats those of his competition, pun intended. And do you notice how that they made no attempt to get their staffs back or snakes back? And I believe that they were fully aware of the limitations of their secret arts. And so more concerned with job security than success, they stopped while they were ahead. Why? Because a magician never reveals his what? Tricks, secrets, right? And church, I believe that we need to be reminded daily of who alone is sovereign. Why? Because we live in a world where there are many displays of power that seem to defy reason. Our world is filled with magicians who perform tricks that appear supernatural and that suggest that the one who performs them has genuine power. And sadly, we even see this very thing employed in the church by hucksters as they hawk their ability to heal, don't we? But friends, if we are not firmly grounded in God's word, then we may easily be swept up in, in the show, just as Pharaoh was. He watched his magicians perform, and whether from a heart desperate to believe or indifferent, we're not told. But what we do know is that as a result of what he witnessed, his heart became hard, just as the Lord had said. God alone has true power. People merely pretend. Unfortunately, Pharaoh succumbed to the charade. Thus, we come to the first plague and the second demonstration of God's sovereignty, and that is the plague of blood. The plague of blood. Would you look back now at verse 14 there in chapter 7? It reads this way. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you. Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With this staff in my, that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And let's stop there. So following God's initial demonstration of his sovereignty, displayed to a private audience, he now opens the theater doors, so to speak, to the entire nation as he directs Moses to the Nile and to his second encounter with Pharaoh. And if you recall, when God first appeared to Moses in the Midian Desert, he, pro he provided Moses with three different supernatural signs by which he could convince the elders and Pharaoh of God's endorsement of his rescue mission. The first was the staff, the snake, the staff thing, which we just discussed. The second regarded the leprous hand, which isn't mentioned as being performed here in our text. The third was this very plague, wasn't it? And so at this point, Moses is simply following the script that God had given him all the way back in the desert. 
he informs Pharaoh that by striking the Nile River with his staff, all the water is going to be turned to blood. It's going to kill the fish, make a horrible smell, and the water will become undrinkable. That's clearly a supernatural sign, right? I mean, if you're going to transform an entire river from water to blood, that's, that's a pretty powerful demonstration of God's sovereignty. And don't miss how Moses informs Pharaoh that it will be accomplished. He doesn't simply tell Egypt's king that the water will be changed. He identifies the time of the change, the means by which this change will be wrought, as well as the change's extent. And before we elaborate on the significance of these points, I just want to address the importance of the river itself. Why the Nile? And I would imagine that many of us this morning already know the answer, but for those who don't, the Nile was a river believed to be a great god in Egypt. It was the source of life for all of the Egyptians, sustaining their agriculture. It watered their livestock. It quenched their thirst. And thus it was viewed as the great life-giving deity in Egypt. Only now, Yahweh is promising to kill it. And he's doing so in a symbolic manner because blood, as you know, was also representative of life. Blood is an essential part of life. And here, God is taking Egypt's god of life He's transforming it into the liquid of life, only rather than providing that which both of these entities reflected unto the people, it's going to bring death. That's a powerful display of God's sovereignty, right? Now, sadly, our text goes on to describe how, once again, the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And, it, and it's here that I believe we see the significance of those specific statements those qualifications that Moses gave previously. Because while the magicians could only imitate this miracle in its result, they couldn't bring it about as Moses did, could they? By either the extent or to the effect. It's likely that they simply dyed some water. Because you notice again, as with the snakes, these guys don't even attempt to change the water from blood back into water. And guys, we live in a world as we've said before, in which there are so many displays of so-called power that unless we are grounded in God's word, we can so easily be led astray. And let me just give you one example. Consider the medical profession for just a moment. Today, I, I found hospital slogans online that directed us to depend on them for life or that they are here for life. I found those online. And it is true that the medical profession is amazing today in what they can treat while you're alive but unfortunately that's all the medicine can do while doctors can change change out knees and, and hips lungs even hearts they can't give us life and they most certainly cannot change your outlook on life if you're struggling to find purpose or meaning if your family's falling apart relationships are deteriorating and you find no joy in what you do i'm sorry but the medical field is not the final solution and yet like pharaoh's magicians they offer so much more than they deliver. Now, for those who work in medicine, and you don't misunderstand, I believe that nurses and doctors perform a vital work in our society. I'm simply warning us of the danger of attributing to science a power that it does not possess. God alone has true power. People merely pretend. In church, God demonstrated his sovereignty over Egypt's God of life, the Nile. And again, Pharaoh's heart, we're told, was indifferent. And so then we come to the second plague, and God's third demonstration of his sovereignty, and that is the plague of frogs. The plague of frogs. Did you look at verse 25 there in chapter 7, where we read this, Exodus 7, 25. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go 
so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will go up on you and your people and all your officials. And let me stop there. Because I'm sure we can tell by this, even this early stage, there is a progression to these plagues, isn't there? Whereas only Pharaoh and his staff were privy to the snake display, the nation was affected by the Nile's transformation. Now, the nation is once again the object of God's wrath. However, whereas before, with the blood, the inconvenience factor, if it's fair to call what occurred an inconvenience, but now, rather than simply digging holes along the riverbed to get relief, now the people are going to find frogs in everything. And I believe in this third display of God's sovereignty, he was demonstrating his ability to affect every aspect of Pharaoh's life. The frogs, which don't miss, once again, come from the Nile, access the king's palace, his bedroom, his kitchen, all of his utensils, and not only Pharaoh's, but also that of the officials, his, his people, from the king to the commoner. God displayed his sovereignty over all. But once again, we read there in verse 7, of chapter 8, that the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land. So, just as before, the Egyptians' magicians were able to imitate God's power. So whether they had trained toads or they simply staged a frog infestation, we don't know. But what is clear by this stage is that Pharaoh is beginning to lose faith in his magicians. Because notice his reaction to Moses and Aaron. Verse 8, he asks for them to pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go offer sacrifices to the Lord. Pharaoh no longer appeals to his magician's secret arts. He no longer appears interested in what they're capable of doing, because this is the third time that they've done nothing more than imitate God's power. In each instance, they've been totally powerless when it came to reversing God's plagues, haven't they? And so Pharaoh appeals to Moses for relief, and just so that Moses or Pharaoh, rather, will know that the source of these signs is Yahweh, Moses allows him, Pharaoh, the honor of selecting when this plague will end. Verse 9, Moses says, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs, which Pharaoh does. Moses declares it will be as you say. So why? So that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Friends, here, as with the previous two displays, I believe we're reminded of how only God has true power. Now, people are capable of some impressive things. Dunking a basketball from the free throw line, catching a football, building a rocket, composing a piece of music, writing a novel, fashioning a dress, drawing a picture, painting a portrait, I mean, leading a nation. But in none of these things do we actually display power. For in all of them, we merely take from what is already in existence and we reshape it, refashion it. We don't create from nothing. We can't overcome the laws that govern life as we know it. Like Pharaoh's magicians, people only pretend to have power. God alone forms something from nothing. He alone reverses life's processes because he is life's author. God alone is sovereign. And, and as promised, following Moses' prayer, we read that the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But 
When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, just as the Lord had said. And so we come to the plague of the gnats, or what some scholars believe could have been mosquitoes. Can you imagine? Gnats seem a little bit more tolerable than mosquitoes. But look at verse 16 there in chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Again, again, God brings this plague to pass and it affects the entire nation, just as with the frogs. Pharaoh and all of his people are affected. Only this time, the magicians are at a loss as to how to imitate it. And so they finally inform Pharaoh of what I believe he's already figured out. God is the one who is doing all of this. Now, you would think that at this point, having been informed by his magicians that God is the one behind each of these displays, Pharaoh would simply concede. Up until this point, he's had the excuse, legitimate or not, that his magicians have sustained his disbelief. But now even they have admitted that God is behind it. And whether this was because they simply couldn't catch enough gnats or, or mosquitoes in order to pull off another trick, who knows? But they admit God alone has true power. This is the finger of God. We're merely pretenders. But rather than bow out, Pharaoh remains belligerent. And friends, I believe that our world shares. We all share Pharaoh's stubbornness. We, we live in a world desperate to disprove God, to establish our origin independent of the divine. Some of the so-called leading minds of our time still believe we came from primates or some primordial slime. They insist that we, that we people possess true power. And they point to all that's been accomplished as evidence. Sadly, I believe that as Pharaoh, they have to turn a blind eye if they argue along these lines to all of the suffering we've caused and that we continue to create. They ignore the fact that we've not eliminated disease or world hunger, poverty, or, or war. Rather, we've become more efficient causes of the same. The point, church, I believe, is that people only pretend to possess power. God alone is sovereign. So what does that mean for us in the room today? We who follow Jesus, what does that mean for Christians today? And I believe the answer is given to us in a second overarching truth that I believe we can see revealed in this story. And that is that God demonstrates His power for His glory and His people's good. God demonstrates His power for His glory and His people's good. And I believe we see this first revealed in the plague of flies. So we're in verse 20 of chapter 8 where we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water. Say to him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are, but on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that the Lord, I the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people 
and your people. Did you catch that? After four demonstrations of his sovereignty, God makes a clear, articulated distinction between his people and the Egyptians. And thus, prior to this plague, it appears that the Israelites have suffered right along with the Egyptians. They've battled frogs, they've dug for water, they've swatted mosquitoes or gnats. But now, as God ups the ante, once again, he articulates the distinction that he's making between his people and those under Pharaoh. And friends, I believe what we see here is a reality with which we are all too familiar. Again, we live in a broken world, just as did the Israelites. And in fact, and I didn't point this out a moment ago, but remember, at this point, the people of Israel are still slaves. You know, even though they aren't dealing with flies in this instance, they are still working to make bricks. And so I believe that we ought to know two things here in regards to God's display of his sovereignty. First of all, that God cares for his children. God cares for his children. The very fact that he has come to their rescue displays the depth of his love. But in addition, we also see how he's covering them with his hand, shielding them, if you will, from the flies. So God clearly cares for his people, but don't miss the fact that they are still slaves. They are still living under the harsh hand of Pharaoh. God's demonstration of his power isn't principally concerned with his people's comfort, but rather, as we've seen stated in every plague prior to this point, that you, that's Pharaoh, will know that I am the Lord. Church, God's principal purpose in the rescue of his people was to demonstrate the extent of his power and the depth of his love. God is most concerned with the display of his glory. And this is a point that I believe we need to be reminded of regularly as we, like Israel, as we live surrounded by suffering, awaiting God's promised return. It is so easy for us to become despondent as we face the gnats of cancer. It's easy for us to begin to ask why as, as we deal with the invading frogs of moral decline. If God is sovereign, why? Why? And the answer that we see before us in this text, God's word assures us we're not crazy when we see these things. And God isn't weak when we see these things. Rather, he is demonstrating his power. Why? For his glory and our good. And that's a truth that we see reflected again and again in the plagues that follow, beginning with the plague on livestock. In chapter 9, in verse 1, we read how God once more sends Moses and Pharaoh to Pharaoh with Aaron, and they demand the release of the Israelites. Only this time, God threatens a terrible plague on Egypt's livestock in the field, on their horses and donkeys and camels, and on their cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. God again declares his sovereignty over all, displayed by his power over Egypt's possessions, contrast against his love displayed for his people. And that's a point then repeated in the plague of boils, decimating Egypt's herds through disease. God now allows the Egyptians to experience the joys of illness. And, and while God's protection of his people here isn't explicitly given, I believe in verses 8 through 12, it is clearly assumed. And just as a humorous aside, but one that I believe is so poignant, we're told, verse 11 there, that the magicians now could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them. 
and all the Egyptians. Isn't that a beautiful picture as we know, as we look to the New Testament where Jesus is described by Paul in his letter to the Philippians that one day there will come a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a day where none will be able to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, God literally brings those who oppose him to their knees. While Egypt suffers, God's people enjoy his favor. And that's a truth that we see again displayed in the plague of hail. Having demonstrated his power over waters, amphibians, insects, animals, disease, God now displays his power over the elements, weather. Verse 13 there of chapter 9 and recounts how God sends the hailstorm of hailstorms. But as with the previous three plagues, the land of Goshen where the Israelites dwelt remains untouched. As God reiterates his love for his people and his desire that Pharaoh and his officials and all of the Egyptians might know that there is no one like the Lord in all the earth. And what's interesting here in regards to this eighth demonstration of God's sovereignty is how the Lord gives the Egyptians even forewarning of the decimation to come. If we look there in verse 20, we read that those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and livestock inside. And church, I believe in this action, we see the heart of God once again displayed because it's so easy as we study these plagues to get caught up in the devastation of Egypt that follows Pharaoh's stubborn pride. And we can miss how God's sovereignty demonstrated in these events led pagan people even to fear his word. Now, granted at this stage, the fear that's described is unlikely to reference a saving faith. That's what ultimately comes to those who fear Yahweh and then abide by his Passover regulations. But at this point, what we've seen though is God demonstrate his power for his glory and his people's good through plagues on livestock, boil, hail. He does it again in the plague of locusts. With Egypt's agriculture reeling, following the death of all of the livestock through disease and hail, not to mention the damage that may have already been done to their crops by the hail, God now sends locusts that will devour what little you have left. They will fly your, fill your houses and those of your officials and all the Egyptians. And at this point, we're told that even Pharaoh's officials realize that Egypt's ruined. We are ruined. There's no point in even keeping the Israelites now because God is clearly orchestrating everything. And this time, Pharaoh quickly agrees. He even acknowledges his sin. And he asks for Moses to pray to the Lord to take this deadly plague away from me. And Moses does. However, Pharaoh's deceit is clear. His deceit is, is, is clear. As soon as the locusts are blown into the sea, he refuses once again to allow the people to leave. And thus, God sends the penultimate plague, the plague of darkness. And that's a plague in which God literally turns the light out in Egypt for like three days, during which time verse 23 of chapter 10 tells us that no one could see anyone else or leave his place. Yet, all Israel had light in the places where they lived. Churches, human beings desperate for comfort, averse to pain, we are prone to misunderstand God's person and misinterpret God's promises. And as I said when we began, we read God's word and we study these stories in which he clearly displays his sovereignty, but then we find ourselves suffering or our circumstances go against us and we quickly begin to question why, don't we? 
We watch our world seemingly intent on self-destructing and nothing seems to make sense. All the while, God has made clear in His Word through His self-revelations to us as people that He demonstrates His power for His glory and His people's good. As the God who alone is, is he, he is ultimate. There's, he does everything He does for His glory. Everything He does, He does so that He might display His greatness in His love, His greatness by His mercy, His greatness through His grace and His justice and His power, and we could go on as the God who created us and who admittedly delights in us. God loves us so much that He rescued us. God sent His Son so that we might be set free. Emmanuel, the gospel, I believe the gospel is the supreme act of God's sovereignty as He displayed His power over death and the depth of His love when He came like us in every way and yet without sin. How God took upon Himself all of our brokenness and then died to pay the penalty that our sin deserved. He then rose from the dead so that whoever repents and believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. What does God's sovereignty look like to us, the children of God? It looks like the gospel. And that's a fact that I believe we'll see even more clearly next week when we look together at the final plague. But as we close, may we not miss how God's power demonstrated in the plagues over Egypt displayed His glory and served His people's ultimate good, which was their rescue from slavery. It didn't equate to a life of comfort in the moment or to the elimination of all heartache and disappointment in the moment. And guys, in the same way today, God still demonstrates His sovereignty in our lives as He works all things together for His glory and our ultimate good, which regards, as did the people of Israel, our ultimate or eternal salvation, not our temporal experiences in the moment. God's salvation looks to the eternal, not the temporal. God's salvation promises us hope in the moment and fulfillment in the future. But not joy in the sense of wealth and popularity and prosperity in the moment. But rather fulfillment and peace, perfect in the moment and God's provision unto eternity. And I hope that you've experienced that. And I hope that you are reminded this morning as we've looked to this story that if your circumstances in this moment reflect those of the Israelites witnessing God's amazing displays of sovereignty and yet still living under the hand of Pharaoh, know that just as we'll find out for those who've read ahead, you know the people did leave Egypt, didn't they? And so will we. If your life reflects those experiences, know that God's promised rescue is coming and His sovereignty is experienced in this moment as He provides for our every need and His presence is always with us. I hope that you know that presence and that you've come to know God's gospel. Would you pray with me as we end? Father, we thank You that in the moments where our life circumstances may cause us to question, we might turn to Your Word and be reminded that You remain sovereign Lord, in all of these amazing displays that we see evidenced in Egypt, God, your displays of sovereignty over Pharaoh and all of the gods that he supposedly bowed to. Lord, while your people remained under Pharaoh's hand, you were demonstrating your glory and your goodness. And ultimately, God, we remember that your people walked 
out of Egypt victorious, having plundered their enemies. And Lord, while we might find our life circumstances in this moment in many ways mirroring the suffering of God's people in Egypt, we might also know that one day you have promised you will return. Father, and on that day you will, we pray, find us faithful. For on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim that you're Lord. Father, and then we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter your master's rest. Lord, we look forward to that glorious day. And we know that it's coming for you or a God who cannot lie. But in this moment, if our life circumstances are to that contrary, God, remind us of your great grace in sustaining us. And we praise you for being a God who is sovereign. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen.